They say there are only two guarantees in life, death and taxes. I would add a third guarantee, one that I would suggest to you will be just as certain as the other two. And that guarantee is that if you get married, before it's all over and done with, you will experience real disappointment. I don't know how soon it will happen. I don't know how deeply it will occur. But the fact that it will occur, I would suggest to you, is a guarantee. Sometimes I think about that at weddings. I've had the wonderful privilege, and it is a privilege, to officiate at many, many wedding services. And it's a wonderful occasion. I stand there and I watch as it unfolds, watch as the bridesmaid party comes down the aisle. I usually look and watch the face of the groom when he sees the bride for the first time. They come and they stand there in front of the minister, in front of God and these witnesses. It's a pinnacle in their life. He's there in a tuxedo. She's never looked more beautiful. They stand there with excitement in the air, with romance in the air. Stars in their eyes, candles in their hands, love in their hearts. I look at them. And I sometimes think, I don't say this, <laughs> but I sometimes think, do you have any idea how those two little words are going to change your life? Just two words, I do. Be sure you get them in the right order. Don't say, do I? <laughs> That'll ruin the whole day. But do you have any idea how those two little words will change your life? First of all, in many wonderful ways, absolutely but also in some less than wonderful ways because of that third guarantee, there will be disappointment in marriage. Sometimes it starts very quickly, almost right there at the altar. I was performing a wedding right here in this church, right here where I'm standing today. And as we were going through the homily, I was looking at the bride, and I began to see that beads of perspiration were dotting her brow. I thought, it's not that hot in here. And then I began to notice that as she stood there, she kind of began to do like this. And she began to weave and sway back and forth. And I thought, oh my goodness, we've got to get through this. So I went right through it as fast as I could. Do you, do you, I do, I do, amen, praise the Lord, we're done. We raced her right down here to the front row so she could sit down and save the day. Sometimes it starts almost right away. In fact, as I was thinking of these things, I read a few stories. Just about nervous brides and nervous grooms in particular as they face their wedding day. One I read just this past week. Groom was nervous, wasn't sure when he was supposed to speak. When do I say I do? He, he, he just wanted to be sure he had everything right. Minister was now at the vows section. And in the vows, he read something they had not gone over. To the bride, he said, will you promise to obey? She hissed. Do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> Which he thought was his cue and said, I do. <laughs> or what about the other nervous groom about which I read this week? 
Michael Hodgson tells of a friend of his, he says he was performing the wedding service. The groom, once again, a bit uncertain, a bit unsure of what to do, when to say it, just follow along, said the minister. They got to the point where the minister asked, will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? And he stood there in silence. Well, you can imagine a few hearts skipped a few beats. The minister looked at the groom, will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? And then the minister prompted him, said, I will. And the groom said, oh, I will too. Sometimes the disappointment begins early on. I can remember when I was in seminary, most of us who hung around in the group I was with were single, but we had one friend who was married who at times would spend time with us. I remember to this day the story he told us. He said, I've got to tell you all about my wedding night. We said, we're all ears. <laughs> he said, well, let me tell you what occurred. Not that, he said. Let me tell you what happened a little bit later. He said, I got up, went to the restroom, came back, four or five in the morning. I came back, and in the hotel room where we were staying, there was some refracted light so that I could come back, and as I was about to get back in bed, I looked down, and there was my wife. Now she was. There she lay, my wife. She had long hair, lying in the bed, asleep. We're picturing this romantic scene. He said, I stood there, and I looked at her. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> we were single. We listened to this slack job. I didn't get married for several years after that. I scared the life out of me. First night, and you're saying, what have I done? Well, it passed, apparently. I ran into him here at this church just a few years ago, still happy, still married. But that image stayed with me. There is disappointment in marriage. In fact, one person put it this way, said, when you get married, there are actually six people who get married. Six people who get married at that wedding altar. In the first year, you have four funerals. The first two to die off are the guy you thought he was and the gal you thought she was. Those go pretty quick as you begin to learn, this is not the person I thought I married. The next two funerals are the guy you thought you were and the gal you thought you were as you were doing and saying things you promised yourself you'd never do or say. Finally, there are only two left. The guy you are, the gal you are. And it is from those two real people that you have to decide, are we going to have a marriage? Disappointment. Sometimes the disappointment is not humorous. Sometimes it is profoundly painful. I was called to visit her. I was a chaplain at the time at the medical center here in Loma Linda. The nurse called and said, would you please come? We're not sure how to deal with her, but she said she would talk to a chaplain. So I made my way up to the room, orthopedics. There she was lying in the bed. She was hooked up to pulleys and wires. There, were, there was metal sticking out of her leg, her arms. She had been broken into pieces. And here now she lay in the bed hoping to recover. Her husband was beside her. And between the two of them, I had to lean in to hear her. Between the two of them, they told me their story. Married for a number of years, happy together. Sure, life had its bumps and its bruises, its disappointments, but they had been happy. 
except for one thing. They longed. They yearned for a baby. They wanted that little plump baby that they would hold in their arms into which they could pour their love and their hopes and their dreams. But because of some medical conditions she faced, she seemed unable to carry a pregnancy to full term. She had lost several. But they had continued to pray, continued to try science, and unbelievably, the doctors told them, really almost miraculously, one pregnancy finally was carried to full term. The joy knew no bounds. This little precious girl was now the center of their world, the focus of their lives. Two and a half years later, little girl snug in her car seat, mom and daughter driving down Magnolia Avenue in Riverside. Coming the other direction was a man who took a drink and then took a drive and drove right straight into them head on. Broke her to pieces. I looked at her there in the bed. Pieces. Trying to hold them together with wire and metal in the hopes of recovery. And that baby... Well, they had buried that baby, and Mom had been unable to attend. And now she lay in a bed, asking, why? As I listened to their story, I wondered, will they make it through this? This can't be called disappointment. This is disaster. This is the kind of debilitating depression that not only rips marriages apart, it rips people apart inside themselves. What to do? Well, Hannah, Hannah was a woman who knew disappointment, knew it better than probably she had ever wished to know it. Hannah's story is told, it's the first story told in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, page 397 in your pew Bible. Hannah knew disappointment. I want to read you a bit of her story. 1 Samuel 1, beginning with verse 1, says this. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. That was his first problem. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. That's really all you need to know is that one sentence, because that one sentence tells the tale. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Till she wept 
and would not eat. I don't know what we would call it today. Certainly we would call it grief. Maybe we would call it depression. The Old Testament chronicler simply said, she wept and would not eat. Why, Hannah? Very simple. In the world of her day, for a woman, children were everything. Children were viewed as the blessing of God. Children were viewed as the fact that God smiled on you, smiled on your marriage. To have no children was not only to mean that maybe God hadn't heard your prayer. It meant that God had cursed you, abandoned you. It meant that in human terms, you would be relegated to the margins. You would be pushed aside. You would be unwanted, marginalized. To have no children for a man or a woman, but especially a woman, meant she had no future. So in Hannah's life, the rain has fallen. There is no hope. There is no future. The disappointment is profound. So Hannah understands, if you know the disappointment of marriage, from whatever source it may have come, lack of children, lack of money, Unmet expectations, meddling in-laws, marrying a person you thought you knew only to discover you did not. Whatever the disappointment might be, Hannah knew that disappointment. My question is, what to do about it? What did Hannah do about it? Well, I think the story indicates two simple realities, simple but profound. The first reality for Hannah, the first reality that began to woo her out of the pit of her disappointment was the love of another. In this case, the love of her husband. Now, as you read these verses, we're going to reread one and then read another one. As you read these verses, remember, these are written in the Old Testament context, the context where women counted for very little. It was a man's world. It was very easy for him as a man, if she didn't have children, just throw her out and bring in somebody who could. It is in that context that we read in verse 5. But to Hannah, Elkanah gave a double portion because he loved her. And then verse 8, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? It's a very tender statement at any time, but certainly in the Old Testament context. It goes both ways. First of all, it says he loved her. Secondly, he said, don't you love me back? Doesn't what I do, what I say, mean something to you even more than all the sons you could have? There was the tenderness of a special love relationship that Elkanah shared with Hannah. I love you regardless of the disappointments that may come. I love you. I don't know if you realize, if you fully understand at this age and stage of life what that means. I have watched it Watched it in my parents. My parents married at 18. 18. They are now 84. Married 66 years. I have watched Dad 
as Parkinson's has ravaged his life. And I have watched mom at his side caring every step of the way. I love you. The love of another. Or consider this, Jean Vanier, founder of the large communities. Large communities are those communities where they care, care for developmentally delayed individuals. She writes, I know a man who lives in Paris. His wife has Alzheimer's. He was an important businessman, his life filled with busyness. But he said that when his wife felt sick, quote, I just couldn't put her into an institution, so I kept her, I fed her, I bathed her, unquote. Vanier continues, I went to Paris to visit them, and this businessman who had been very busy all of his life said, I have changed, I have become more human. I got a letter from him recently. He said that in the middle of his night, the night, his wife woke him up. She came out of the fog for just a moment and said, Darling, I just want to thank you for all you're doing for me. Then she fell back into the fog, and he told me, I wept and wept. That's love. The love of another Sometimes, for reasons beyond your control, it will not be your spouse. It may be a Christian counselor, a friend, a pastor, somebody who can share with you the love of Jesus, the kind of love that can shed a light into a very dark place, the kind of love that Hannah knew when Hannah was at her deepest, when things were at their worst. Her husband, Elkanah, said, Hannah, I love you. Is that not worth more to you than ten sons? In your disappointment? the love of another. But secondly, in your disappointment, the providence of God. The providence of God. Verse 9 says, Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. A solemn vow. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought he was drunk and he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great, great anguish and my grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped the Lord and went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because, she said, I asked the Lord for him. Not just the love of another, but the providence of God. In her life and world, her prayer was answered. You remember the story. That son became one of the great prophets in Israelite history. But sometimes those prayers are not answered the way we might wish. 
Sometimes it's just the disappointment with a spouse, the conflict, and the tension that exists. God, please enter into this. Somehow bring us relief. Those who study marriages say that an, a single marriage will go through several different stages throughout its life. To simplify the process, they say the first stage is the stage of romance. The stage when you're walking on clouds. The next stage is the stage of disillusionment. When reality catches up. The third stage, if you work through the disillusionment, can be a lasting stage called the stage of true love. But it is in that second stage, that say it stage of disillusionment, that many throw it overboard, throw it out, say, I can't deal with the disappointment any longer. I thought God led us together. Now I have profound questions whether he was in it at all. If you've gotten to a point like that, I want to read to you the words of Philip Yancey. Writing on his 25th wedding anniversary, Yancey writes, Before marriage, each, by instinct, strives to be what the other wants. The young woman desires to look sexy and takes up an interest in sports. The young man notices plants and flowers and works at asking questions instead of just answering monosyllabically. After marriage, the process slows and somewhat reverses. Each insists on his or her rights. Each resists bending to the other's will. After years, though, the process may begin to subtly reverse again. I, 25th anniversary, he writes, I sense a new willingness to bend back toward what the other wants. Maturely this time. Not out of a desire to catch a mate, but out of a desire to please a man, a woman, who has shared a quarter century of life. I grieve, says Yancey. I grieve for those couples who give up before reaching this stage. In other words, disappointment will come. Guaranteed. Disillusionment will come without question. The providence of God, however, is still at work in your life and marriage. It was the journalist David Hajdu who wrote the story. He had gone to a supper club in New York City, down in the basement. And down there in the basement at the supper club, he discovered that Wynton Marsalis, one of the greatest jazz, jazz trumpet players of our time, was playing with a little-known band. The supper club was full, and he was writing a story. He listened to Marsalis as he played, and, and this band, they were very good. But then came a moment when Marsalis stepped away from the band, stepped up to the front, and began to play by himself. He played a very old song a song called, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. He played. His instrument wailed and wept. Everyone gathered there was swept up into the tones and the tune of the music. It was so beautiful, people could hardly breathe. And then he came to the last part, and that jazz trumpeter was playing that last line of that, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And he was drawing them out. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. 
And right there, right there, someone's cell phone went off. Absurd tune. The man was mortified, as you might imagine, trying to get it off as quickly as he could, but the tune now hung in the air. The people were frustrated, irate. He had ruined a perfect piece. He fled from the room, and Hajdu said, I wrote on my pad, magic ruined. And then Marsalis, on his trumpet, played the cell phone tune. One note at a time. And then changed notes and played it again and again. And the music began to wind around, wrapping itself once again around those who were there gathered. And then finally, as he for one final time played that cell phone tune, he came back and played the last two notes with you. And they erupted in applause. That's God. God, you brought us together. And then this absurd tune called disappointment has ruined it all. And God says, you just watch. What I do with the disappointment in your life and your marriage. Because he is the jazz trumpeter with no peer. Through the love of his son, through the love of others, and through the providence of God. Into a marriage where rain has fallen, fruit will grow.